This is the Unsuitable Podcast, where I interview single Christians about their lives and faith. I'm Mary B. Saferit, a communicator, creator, and coach passionate about filling the gap between what the church offers and what single Christians need. Each episode this season, we're going to be talking about calling and direction and what it's like to pursue a calling as someone who is single. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow, rate, and review so you don't miss new episodes. In today's podcast episode, you get to hear from me. That's right. We've made it to the season wrap up where I answer the question of the season and tie all the episodes together. You'll hear a story of unexpected calling and what I learned from this season's guests. Let's dive in. The last few months of 2021 didn't work out as I planned. I planned to complete my first full-length book by October. I'd then shift my focus to pitching myself as a speaker. When October emerged on the horizon, however, my book was in shambles, and I was battling a deep reluctance towards speaking. At the end of September, I stood staring at the whiteboard in my office slash bedroom. On it, I'd written all the projects I could focus on. I tilted my head as if a slight shift in angle would make everything slide into place. When my mind remained a tangled swirl of competing motives, I sat back down at my desk, pulled out my journal, and started to write. I wrote my fears and frustrations and hopes. Still no resolution. I asked God what I should do. Trust me, I heard. Trust me? Okay, fair enough, God, but trust you as I do what precisely? Since nothing miraculously popped into my head as the right thing to do, I moved forward from that day doing a little bit of a few things from my list. By November, I'd knocked some projects off the list and kicked a few down the road. Still, the question of speaking hung over my head. It seemed like the obvious choice. A way to connect with my audience, build credibility, and make money. At the same time, there was a persistent hesitation I couldn't quite pin down. Was it fear, imposter syndrome, logistical confusion? The more I hesitated, the more guilt I felt. The more guilt I felt, the more paralyzed I became. Bottom line, I needed an outside perspective. I booked a consultation session with a literary and speaking agent I'd been following for a while. She knew the world I was looking to step into, and she represented an author I admired. Seemed like a perfect fit. In preparation, I made a list of what I was hoping she could help me with. I thought through how to articulate what was keeping me stuck. When the time came to join the call, I was prepared as possible. The call didn't go as expected from nearly the beginning. By that, I mean we went down a brief rabbit hole about city rats, talked about my singing career that faltered before it began, then made our way to writing and speaking. She asked questions about my goals and what kind of help I was looking for. I answered with my prepared list. She told me what kinds of things she could do, then asked what sounded good to me. I paused. In her list was exactly what I needed to launch into a career as a speaker. So why did I feel weighed down rather than excited and hopeful? I thought carefully before answering. Finally, I said, Based on what you listed, I think it would be helpful to narrow down some topics and talk about how to approach churches and organizations. 
But before we do that, I think there's something else we need to talk through. I went on to describe the reluctance I was feeling about speaking. It was frustrating, I explained, because this path made sense. At the same time, I had this idea for a live event slash performance that I found exciting, but the barrier for entry seemed higher. Unlike speaking, which would be an organization paying me to come in and speak at something they'd organized, this was something I'd have to organize and fund. Why couldn't I just get excited about the thing I was supposed to do? The path people in my position were supposed to take. She asked me to explain more about my performance idea. I obliged. When I finished my spiel, she did what any good coach should do. She told me what she saw, even though it meant she was no longer the best coach for me. Apparently, my energy completely shifted. I became animated. Also, my goal went from something that was about building my platform to something that would create a community for those I'm trying to serve. In short, she said it seemed like I was primarily interested in speaking because it's what I thought I was supposed to do, not what I felt called to. Speaking, she explained, comes with a high level of responsibility and pressure. So if I wasn't feeling called to it, it would be wise to consider those feelings. At the end of our allotted time, I hung up, unsure what I was feeling. While there was a bit of relief, there was also some unease. Standing up from my desk, I put on my sneakers and went for a walk. Typically, I listened to music or an audiobook. That day, I didn't. My brain was too full of thoughts, namely an argument between practical merbs and artist merbs. True to form, the discussion became existential. What was the point of art? A speaker tells and teaches, an artist creates and leaves room for interpretation and exploration. Who was I serving here? My reader or my ego? What was the place of beauty for someone who needs something useful? It was a funny thing to consider as I walk through Central Park. One could argue that it is not useful in the revenue-generating sense, and yet I use it nearly every day. As I exited the park, I walked past the Metropolitan Museum of Art, another not-so-useful building filled with art and funded by donors. I wandered in that day, carrying with me my questions about the point of art. Surely, if there was a place to consider my current dilemma, it was there. Generally, I head straight for the Van Gogh section, and I sit with the swirling colors. When I got there, however, those benches were full. I wandered into the next room, sat in front of a moody Monet, and waited for the answer to come to me. What came instead was a feeling of restlessness. Annoyed, I stood and started to mosey aimlessly. It occurred to me that a prayer wouldn't go amiss. All right, God, I said internally. I'm going to meander and follow whatever catches my eye and see what happens. Spirit, guide my steps and my eyes. I walked through galleries, noticing, waiting. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something bright blue. It was a wall with a mosaic pattern in white and turquoise tile. I wandered in that direction. Then I noticed a room with a carved wooden ceiling painted deep red and gold in interlocking star patterns. I sat in that room for a while, craning my neck. It seemed impolite to lie on the floor, so I wandered on. Then I heard what sounded like a trickle of water. Where was it coming from? I followed the sound through displays of ceramics painted with Arabic writing until I noticed 
intricately carved arches leading to a small square space. In the middle was a marble fountain, low to the ground, with round scalloped edges. It was surrounded by a frame of tile work in blue, green, and yellow. Behind and in front of me, separating this space from the rest of the exhibit, were columns and arches. The arches were a white material I'd later learned to be stucco. They were carved with repeating patterns of leaves and flowers. The other walls were tiled mosaics of varying star patterns. The ceiling was open and lit by simulated sunlight, framed by wood panels that were also carved in patterns. It reminded me of rooms I'd seen on my trip to Morocco a decade prior. There were benches, so I sat and stared at the space and its gently trickling fountain. I turned my attention to the arches. They were exquisite. It occurred to me that the arches didn't need to be carved as they were. They would have been perfectly functional without the decoration, but there was no denying they were beautiful. If the arches had been plain, they would have still been nice, but they wouldn't have caused me to linger there. They wouldn't have drawn my eye. They probably wouldn't have ended up in this museum. Speaking of, how had they ended up here? And what was this room? As if on cue, a small group traipsed in. It looked like a family and a tour guide, based on her name tag and the fact that she was talking and pointing. How fun, I thought. I'll get to hear about this room without going on a whole tour. She explained that this was a recreation of a traditional Moroccan courtyard. Everything around us had been handcrafted by Moroccan artisans who'd been flown in by the Met. The tour guide pointed to the interior surface of one of the arches. She explained, All these arches were carved by hand, but if you look carefully at this one, you can see something in the pattern that looks like a feather or a leaf. Do you see the lines and how one line in the pattern is different with a loop at the end? The artist incorporated the word Allah in Arabic into his design. So as he carved, as he did his work, it was like a ritual and a prayer. As the tour group moved on, I was left with what i just heard and the unexpected tears it brought to my eyes. This artist, out of his love for God, had carved God's name over and over in this design. The detail of that carving had drawn my eye enough to keep me in that room at the exact moment a tour group would walk through, and I'd hear about that detail at a moment when I just happened to be wrestling with questions about art and utility and faith. The intimate detail of the moment whispered that all my details mattered to God, my love, joy, and fear, and my desire to make. It reminded me that God meets us in the details, that God is concerned with the infinite and the infinitesimal. It reminded me that, like the artisan who carved God's name into his work as a prayer, my own creation could be a prayer. It was almost obscene how beautiful and perfect and unforced the moment was. I couldn't have written it better, even if I wanted to. I pulled out my journal, and I wrote as many details as possible so that I wouldn't forget, and I wrote these words. Why do we make art? Why do we create beauty beyond utility? The creation is a prayer. It is the name and imprint of God etched into us over and over, flowing out through fingers and voice and movement into our handiwork. Our callings don't necessarily make sense when viewed through the lens of utility at times, nor do they necessarily follow the most practical path. Christina Hart talked about how she never dreamed she'd be a comedian. At the same time, she knew she was on to something good. She said, the more I wrote and the more I shared my thoughts, People really responded, and they resonated, and they felt accepted and understood. 
This season's guest talked about calling as something that makes us come alive, touching on our God-given desires, the ones we might even be afraid to say out loud because they're so intimate in their particularity. Joan Watson said, We're scared to admit what we love and the desires of our heart, and I think sometimes we're scared to surrender those because we have in our mind that God's going to ask us to give it up. To admit those God-given desires is risky. As Joan said, maybe we're afraid God will ask us to let them go. Mayhaps we're worried people will react with mocking incredulity. I almost didn't mention my live event idea to the consultant because I was concerned she would say it was impractical or even arrogant. But part of me was also afraid that she might say it was a good idea. Then I would feel bound to pursue the risky road of making it happen. Part of me believed that the path of speaking was more sure because it was well-trodden. But, as Avery said, for a creative career or life, there aren't roadmaps. There's no set way to do things, but I think we're looking for those very specific signs. And I like to believe that we have free will. There's so many paths, there's so much mystery, and it's safe. It's safe to explore and to try. It might still feel scary to try, though. Mayhaps that's why callings are so powerful. They have to be pretty strong to motivate us beyond our fear. I love Matt Linden's definition of a calling. In his episode, he said, I've come to think of calling as the thing I cannot not do. There's just a fire in your belly. You have to do it or you're not going to be able to sleep at night. Is there something in your life that feels that way? It doesn't have to be vocational. It can be relational, personal, communal, or spiritual. For Carmen Ross, it was a call toward authenticity. She wanted more authentic relationships, but she started by being authentic with herself and God. She began expressing herself through art, which she shared with others, hoping it would empower them to express themselves creatively. She said, If you have felt a prompting to put something out there, and you think it will help somebody, you really got to focus on that, versus any critiques or critics. We've all been created by our creator to create. She and I also talked about how not everything we create is for others. Sometimes, like when Carmen started out, the creation is for us. Michael Fraser, who fixated on his picture of success as a poet, found himself in a dark place and turned to his craft to understand what he was going through. He said, I was writing then just to write for myself, to help get myself out of the dark period I was going through, or to just make sense of the world around me. Sometimes we want our callings to be big and grand. Sometimes we get caught up in the idea that the point of our calling is our version of success. Nearly every guest expressed some iteration of a very different reality. It would seem that our callings are about relationships as much as they are about anything else. Here's how Eric Demeter put it. He said, God loves the process as much of us trying to figure out his will as he does what the ultimate outcome is. Because as we're processing it, we're seeking God. We're wanting to know God, read scripture, talk to others. And I think that God loves all that just as much as us finding our dream job. Catherine Freeman said it slightly differently in her episode. She said, What a delight to love and serve my neighbors with the unique gifts God has given me. What a delight to offer back to God the things he has given to me. And whatever that looks like, I just think that relieves the pressure. I love Catherine's picture of the process. It gives me this feeling of deep communion with ourselves, others, and God. I get this picture of meeting and being met. 
like the details that drew me to the Moroccan court in the Met for the tiniest huge moment of seedness that God could have given me in that moment. Melinda Fugate described it like this. There's no every time it happens the same way, which makes it so hard, but it also gives it a lot of room for individuality and our personalities and our unique situations. I hope that this season has given you permission to take the pressure off when it comes to calling. I hope these stories and insights have helped you remember that God delights to be with us. He is not a despotic taskmaster whose cosmic plan of restoration depends on us following our callings in a particular way. I hope you feel a little more settled and a little more seen. Most of all, I hope you feel empowered to say yes to that little or large nudge, whether that means a dramatic Instagram countdown for a blog launch like Matt, or taking a day off to rest and recharge, or setting a boundary. Whatever it is, I hope you join me in saying yes. Thanks for listening. It's been a great season. We'll start working on season eight in a few months. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review. To stay up to date on all things unsuitable, follow me on Instagram at maryb.saferit or subscribe to my weekly newsletter at marybsaferit.com. This podcast is produced by Ashley Hong, sound engineering by Bijoy Ahmed, and the theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That's all for now. Catch you on the flippity flop. <laughs>